This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your guide, Peter Korchnak. On February 19, 2015, Clemente Padin, the elder statesman of Uruguayan art, replied to an email from his compatriot and young artist Francisco Tomsic with a fateful attachment. A list of email and postal addresses of six Yugoslav male artists. These were some of the people with whom Padin had corresponded in the 1970s and 80s and 90s as part of a male art network. Give my regards to those with whom you connect, and good luck, dear friend, Padin wrote. Four years later, Tomsic traveled to Belgrade to track down the now ex-Yugoslav male artist from Padin's list. He mailed a letter to each of them with Padin's regards, a request to meet, and a return address. Then, Tomsic waited. Padin's list launched Tomsic into a story of surprising discoveries, unintended consequences, and indeed, Yugoslavia as a cultural space. A story of art and the postal service and the threads that connect us. A story of friendships spanning decades and dictatorships and continents and generations. Today on Remembering Yugoslavia, Uruguayan artists, Yugoslav male art, and the power of the post. As always, this Remembering Yugoslavia story is brought to you by you. Thank you to everyone who has signed up as a monthly supporter of Remembering Yugoslavia on Patreon or donated one time via PayPal. Today I welcome new patron Megan and extend a special thanks to Sebastian for his contribution. If you like the show and wish to support its production, join these generous people at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia or donate one time at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate. In short, male art is a form of art which is done through the mail. So all that can be sent through the postal office is uh, included in means of uh, artistic uh, communication. Andrei Tishma is a former male artist and art critic based in Novi Sad. It's an open um, art movement where everybody can take part. An artist would send their artwork by post to another artist. The recipient would then decide to respond to the piece by mailing one of their own back. Male artists tended to be visual artists, but poets, designers, print workers, and indeed non-artists have participated too. And uh, the only limits are the limitations of the post office, so dimensions and the media that could be sent through the mail. Lettering, rubber stamps, artist postal stamps, decorated envelopes, postcards, letters and cards, xerographs and photocopies, cartoons, drawings, illustrations, paintings, engravings, stencils, photographs and photomontages, collages, stickers, zines, booklets, found objects, poems and texts, cassettes and CDs. Materials range too. Paper, cardboard, plastic foil, glass and plexiglass, metal, cloth, styrofoam, body parts, film, packaging. There is no trend or style in male art. Male art has no program or manifesto. There is no center or structure or leadership. There was no two same male artists. Every male artist had its own style and was recognizable by some symbols, some images, some messages he sent. So every artist in that network tried to be different and genuine. Artists have exchanged their works through mail since the postal service was invented. But as an organized and conscious artistic movement, male art emerged in the late 1950s, early 1960s, through the activities of several art movements that explored mail as a medium. This was the time when communications and transportation boomed, and only improved since then. 
Television, intercontinental flights, satellites, and computers accelerated connections and shrunk physical distances across the globe. Faster and smaller the world became. At the same time, the Postal Service Network remained the most widespread, available, and organized system of communication. Also known as correspondence art or postal art, mail art evolved some 50 years ago as an act of communication, art that only comes into existence in the interaction between artists. Aesthetic communication and exchange are the primary components of this art form. Comprising a myriad of spontaneous interpersonal encounters among artists, mail art essentially hacks the post as a global system run by national governments into a democratic medium for art that allows marginalized artists, or artists from marginalized places, to express themselves and present their work on equal footing with their peers. Mail art is not the stuff sent through the mail, it is the communication, exchange and sharing done with it. The 1970s was the period of building and spreading the network beyond its origins in the so-called West, including in South America and Eastern Europe. An informal worldwide network of male artists developed, forming an international community of essentially strangers living and making art in mutually strange lands and cultures. By this artistic movement's pinnacle in mid to late 1980s, some 10,000 participating artists were exchanging countless pieces of art. Hundreds of magazines, catalogs, books and fanzines circulated, and tens of male art exhibitions were held. The idea was to create a global community connected through art and post, free of barriers like national borders, ideologies, religions and money. One male art practitioner, the Hungarian Geza Pernetsky, said the male art network was the first World Wide Web. Male art eliminated the middleman, whether he was the gallery owner, or the curator, or the critic, or in fact the patron. Artists were the creators, the consumers, and the exhibitors of male artworks. In other words, everything operated outside and as an alternative to the established structures of cultural production and commercial consumption. The intention was to remove the distinctions between life and art and between high and popular culture. For these reasons, male art remained on the margins of art. If you bypass the market, you'll stay outside it. Conversely, male art enabled artists working with economic and political constraints to express themselves and be a part of a larger global artist community. In the 1980s, Tishma called male art a new cultural policy and the network an immense collective work of art, a pulsating spiritual sculpture that encompasses the world. Anybody could, still can, join the network, regardless of their creative capability, age, class, culture, ideology, race, nationality. Some people could say there is no criteria. If everybody can take part in, in male art network, there are no criteria. But it's not true because uh, if you send uh, works with lower quality and uh, some boring things or with very low energy, you will not uh, get replies. So you will exclude yourself from that network because if you send good works and provocative works and interesting works, you get uh, replies and uh, reactions. And this is the joy of uh, doing mail art because you are always expecting some reactions, some discussions. Some uh, There was cases that people intervened on my works and sent them back to me. So they, they made some input from themselves to my works. This kind of communications was, uh, I can say, uh, the embryo of Internet, because in the Internet you have the same principle of uh, interaction and uh, exchange and uh, everything is open and free. That may sound like great hindsight, but in 1986, Tishma wrote, 
Perhaps the male art of today, which uses the postal network, should be seen as the embryo of a future art for which no technical devices are in existence as yet, and which will work by pure exchange of thought and energy, transmitted by means of some kind of waves, which will encompass the entire planet, a big wave sweeping over all those desirous of being included in the exchange. Today, paradoxically, male art survives thanks to websites and social media. You can browse scans of male art and connect with male artists at the websites of the International Union of Male Artists and at Male Art Projects. You can join male art exchanges in a number of Facebook groups and peruse male art works on Instagram. Male art has not completely disappeared because of the internet. Internet has not yet killed the male art star. Though postal costs have skyrocketed and mail has slowed, especially in the pandemic, perhaps male art will only disappear if the postal service ever disappears. While male art originated and spread most widely in the so-called West, it was in the peripheries of the two power blocks where it had perhaps the greatest real-world impact. Born in 1939, Clementa Padin is an Uruguayan artist, concrete and visual poet, uh, male artist, uh, performer, etc. Ricardo Bollone is an Italian avant-garde art critic living in Montevideo. He also oversaw the process of incorporating Padin's archive in the collection of the University of the Republic in Montevideo. Clemente Padin started uh, in the mid-60s as, as a writer. The pioneer of male art in Uruguay and in all of South America first started a literary journal, then a few years later another one, and... Around this time, he started to look at male art, which at this stage was pretty early worldwide. Padin first exchanged art via post in 1967 with a number of South American artists. In 1969, he published a series of five postcards with um, basically what we will call now uh, concrete poetry, which was not intended to be exchanged like, like usually happens in male art. Uh, still, I think it's, it's interesting that, that he published this so early seeing the, the medium of postcard as, as a, a great way to divulge his work. He didn't join the network of mail art until, I would say, the mid-70s, or a bit earlier, maybe 73, 74. He exchanged with basically artists from all over the world. After a military dictatorship was established in Uruguay in 1973, Padin's work became political. Art was no longer just art, but a means of communication, and its aim and content not aesthetic, but political. For Padin, male art was a form of social consciousness. Revolution was a matter of everyday practice, artistic and otherwise, waged with everyday weapons like pencils and envelopes and postage stamps. It was, he once wrote, a bridge to freedom. In October 1974, he co-organized the Creative Postcard Festival at a small experimental gallery in Montevideo. At the time, itself proclaimed to be the first Latin American male art exhibition. Among the advantages of the postcard as an artistic medium, he included its speed, its breadth of communication, its ease of manufacture, and its unprecedented expressive possibilities. His 1976 piece, Happy Bicentennial, sent to male artists in the U.S., contained instructions on how to make a flower bomb and deliver it to select Wall Street addresses, which hosted banks and corporations propping up the Uruguayan regime at the time. In 1977, Padin published a series of male art stamps denouncing the military dictatorship. Works like this led to his imprisonment for two years and subsequent house arrest for five. 
At the time, Uruguay was said to have the highest per capita number of political prisoners in the world. The authorities also confiscated and destroyed his archive. Just as mail art was behind his incarceration, it contributed to his early release in November 1979. Fellow mail artists mounted the international campaign to free Clementa Padin and Jorge Caraballo, another political prisoner, with the most powerful tool they had, mail. The campaign gathered thousands of signatures, mailed hundreds of letters to governments and artworks to network participants, and organized exhibitions and issued publications. In 1983, in a certain way, he resumed his artistic activities with an exhibition of mail art. The theme was the 1st of May, the, the Worker Day. And again, I think it was one of the first big uh, exhibition of, of mail art in the region. In 1984, he co-founded the Latin American and Caribbean Union of Male Artists. Through a bulletin and another magazine, Padin began rebuilding his network of male artists, including in Yugoslavia. He was released on parole after serving half his sentence. For the remainder of the dictatorship, Padin could not leave Uruguay, create art, or use the postal system. He's a multitasking artist, so while he was doing mail art, of course, he was still doing performances and book of poetry, etc. But he actually, he actually never stopped, I would say, until 2003-2004. The vast majority of his production, uh, at least until the early 2000s, has to do with the, the dictatorship and, 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 and always with a social and political perspective. The dates that we talk about with Padin reflects a bit the general state of, of mail art. I guess since the 2000, it, it lost uh, centrality. Centrality, we're talking in the, in the marginal <laughs> sphere where we are. Throughout his mail art career, Padin's work has been published in dozens of publications, translated into many languages, and exhibited at more than 1,200 exhibitions around the world. Meanwhile, in Yugoslavia. We had very good uh, communications with the world in, in 60s and 70s. Uh, our country was open to all cultural events and uh, we had um, big festivals. Many, many foreign big names uh, were visiting uh, Yugoslavia and with that they brought culture and uh, uh, made their uh, exhibitions. It all influenced the culture in Yugoslavia, which was open to all, and also our people could travel everywhere. So it was very open and big exchange in that time, mostly end of 60s, 70s. It was fantastic. During the Cold War, Yugoslavia enjoyed a unique status among countries, a market socialist state in neither the Eastern Bloc nor the West. The country remained open and from the 1960s on led the non-aligned movement, which struggled against imperialism, colonialism and all other forms of foreign domination, interference and hegemony, particularly vis-à-vis -vis the two great powers. This made it possible for artists, including male artists, to work with much less government interference than in the countries of the Eastern Bloc and maintain connections with the outside world. In the 80s it was still open and uh, all these male art uh, activities were the result of uh, previous uh, contacts and uh, cultural influences. So the male art was also very, very open and uh, successful. Yugoslav artists participated in the male art network from the early 1970s. 
The first major exhibition of male art was held in Belgrade in January 1972, featuring male artworks from the Paris Biennale. The exhibition then traveled to Zagreb, where the curator decided to protest the commodification and institutionalization of conceptual art by keeping the parcel in which the works arrived unopened and simply exhibiting the postal package as postal package. I entered this network in the early 70s when I was studying in Prague, in Czechoslovakia, and I started sending out uh, envelopes with some rubber stamp messages on them to some friends, uh, mostly in Yugoslavia, because uh, I had their addresses. Because I was uh, far away from home for the first time in my life, it was my way to communicate with artists. My real involvement in, in network began in 1984 or 83, when I got in contact with Dobrica Kamperilic. He gave me contacts, addresses of some foreign and interesting artists and invitations to some projects, mail art projects, in exhibitions in the world. So I sent my first works to those addresses and get back some catalogs from those exhibitions, which opened contacts with some more artists, new artists, because in those catalogs were addresses of those artists. So the circle was widening with my communication. So I started real networking with hundreds of artists worldwide. I received daily from 10 to 20 artworks into my mailbox. Uh, it was very vivid communication. Dobrica Kamperilic was a prominent figure in Yugoslav male art who died last year. He was the, the big... Uh, activist and uh, he was linking all of us he was giving us informations about events all over the world announcing our projects our exhibitions everything he very often published my works my rubber stamps my uh, postcards and my articles and send it to the world so he was very important link to the world he was always open and I really admire him for that. Tishma used to say his mailbox was a gallery and the postman the curator. In collaboration with galleries, the media, and companies providing sponsorship-like funding, he organized a number of exhibitions. In 1984, at the time of the Winter Olympic Games in Sarajevo, he invited male artists to mail him works on the theme of the Olympics. In Olympic Games, it's important to take part. The same thing is in male art. It's important to take part, not it's not important who is the better or who is the best, but just this communication and exchange. He received 120 artworks from 20 countries, which he first exhibited on a local television program that was broadcast throughout all of Yugoslavia. It was maybe the first uh, male art exhibition on TV. The exhibition then moved to a local art gallery the following year to Sarajevo, where it was the first male art exhibition in that city, and it was later exhibited at the next Winter Olympics in Calgary. Tishma estimates there were some 20 to 25 male artists in Yugoslavia throughout the 70s and 80s. In the latter decade, some of them even helped revitalize the male art network with new initiatives. The most of male artists in Yugoslavia were located in Serbia, in Belgrade, Novi Sad, Subotica, Zrenjanin, Sombor, in those cities of 
Serbia and Vojvodina. Mostly, mostly I can say Vojvodina. For example, there is a place called Ojaci. A multicultural town of 8,800 people in western Vojvodina. Five male artists were working and sending from Ojaci. Some said this is the, the biggest male art center in the world. On a per capita basis. The male artists here were Serbs, including one Nenad Bogdanovic. There was a Hungarian, there was a Slovak. And also there were some in Zagreb, not so many, and uh, in Ljubljana also. It was center of avant-garde art, and uh, not much in Bosnia. There were maybe 10 uh, very serious participants active from early 80s till 90s and after. We were very much respected in, in, in the West and in the world. Our um, role was even more respected uh, in the 90s when the war started in Yugoslavia. Socialist Yugoslavia disintegrated in 1991. One of the successor states was the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, comprising Serbia and Montenegro. Because of its role in the wars of Yugoslavia's dissolution, in May 1992 sanctions were imposed on the country. These included an international embargo, bans on scientific and technical cooperation, sports and cultural exchanges, and on air travel. So we artists who who were so active in this international network and free exchange of everything and uh, building a world with no frontiers, a world of brotherhood between uh, people, uh, artists and nations, were suddenly disabled to communicate, to make art. One stamp, uh, one postal stamp for for United States costed as one kilo of bread. So you had to choose if you buy a bread or send uh, something to United States. The embargo led to a two-year period of hyperinflation, up to 313 million percent per month, and shortages of everything from petrol to medications, as well as the explosion of the black market. And we, male artists, still continued our exchange with the world, and we were against the war, we we organized many actions and projects and uh, performances against the war, and uh, we, we were collaborating inside Yugoslavia with all those separated republics, and this was very positive. I was most active in 90s in this network because uh, it was the only way for me to get out of this uh, international blockade and uh, to show that we still can uh, exist and work. In interviews back then, Tishma would say, culture should never be put under embargo. In 1994, since mail was stopped but phone links remained open, he organized an exhibition of Telefax art, with some 200 submissions sent to a gallery in Novi Sad via fax. We had many friends in in the West who were opposing this embargo and blockade. Most um, male artists opposed that, although we didn't have what to eat and to drink, but we, we got this morale support, which is the most important. And we, we felt always that we are not uh, left by those friends. Prominent male artist John Held said at the time that Yugoslav networker artists are freedom fighters and are serving as examples to other network artists. They are reminding us of art's higher purpose. Their spirits have not been defeated. If anything, they seem to have gotten stronger. They have done important things with their anti-embargo art actions. 
I think perhaps this has made their art even more relevant. Certainly it has given them increased respect throughout the world. People in the West appreciated that very much in their articles about us, that we are teaching them uh, the morality of art and how to behave in these hard situations and uh, that we give them examples how art uh, should uh, respond to war and aggression and uh, that in these uh, difficult times we we continued our activities although we were in some danger because uh, in the time when people were drafted for war doing against war it was a bit uh, you know dangerous your mail art after the Yugoslav Wars of Dissolution, did you continue making it? No, no. I stopped. I, it's very simple. When I uh, bought my first uh, computer and got the internet in 1996, I stopped uh, doing mail art. I stopped uh, uh, going to the post office because uh, all these years I was crowded with letters, postcards, works, papers, Everything. My home is full of these boxes, and uh, and in 1996 I started uh, internet communications with even more people because the communication is faster. Also, some mail artists uh, became uh, email artists or in- electronic mail artists and internet artists. So we continued communication. I, I continued doing uh, some digital works, digital graphics videos, music, all in the in the field of internet art. And this is my way till today to express myself. One facet of male art was cassette experimentalism, basically do-it-yourself experimental music distributed on audio tapes. It was strongest in the US, where it's known as home taping. In Yugoslavia, it only emerged in mid-80s, entering the male art network from the punk scene. Most cassette experimentalists in male art in Yugoslavia were multi- and mixed-media artists. When I sought music for this episode, I discovered EPP, or EPP, a Belgrade-based duo comprising Kiri Wozniki, originally from Cleveland, Ohio, and Vladimir Nikolic. EPP stands for Ekonomsko Propagandni Program, or Economic Propaganda Program, which was the term used in socialist Yugoslavia for commercial breaks. The band is contemporary, but I'd like to imagine that, had they been active in the 80s, they would have been part of cassette experimentalism and their music available via the Mail Art Network. Buy their music! Prognoza za sutra nema više zime Coca-Cola sunce pozdravlja Eskime Forecast for tomorrow, no more winter sorrow Coca-Cola sunshine for Eskimo Fontaine In December 1975, the first ever male art exhibition in Argentina, in Buenos Aires, featured artists from 19 countries, including two from Yugoslavia. The event marked a turning point in the artistic exchanges, including male art, between Latin America and Central and Eastern Europe. For Padin and his contemporaries in the two regions, male art was an expression of a utopian fraternity of artists collaborating not just across but outside national borders. 
It was also one of the few, if not the only way, these artists could gain any visibility outside their countries and particularly in the West. He really corresponded with, with of course, Latin America, but, but almost, I would say, almost all the, the countries in Europe and, and the U.S., of course, and then maybe some, some other Asian countries. As far as Yugoslavian artists, um, I, I checked the, the, the material that I, that I have. And, for example, I found a, a, jo- a work by, um, well, p- pardon my pronunciation, because I have no Miro Ljub Todorovic. And then, uh, in participation... One of Clemente Padin's magazines. Appears, for example, a call for works uh, for the journal Total by Nenad Bogdanovic, where uh, he's basically asking for 133 copies of a 6 by 6 centimeters work <laughs> for, for, for his journal. Um, then uh, there's another call uh, by Bogdanovich uh, in a later issues in 1985 for an exhibition uh, which is called uh, Imprinted uh, and then uh, again in 1985 uh, another call uh, this time by Andrei Tisma for another exhibition called Private Life To hear Andrei Tisma recount it Dobrica Kamperovic was very much in contact with South uh, America and uh, he gave me contact with Clemente Padin and uh, gave me some catalogs with, with his works. And so I was really, really fascinated about Clemente, his struggle for, for freedom. He made very, very explicit uh, graphics about this situation. I liked it very much and uh, people over the world uh, liked it very much and respected him. So very early in the 80s, I got much from Latin America, from different countries, but also from Padin. And they are all very talented artists from Latin America, giving great, great uh, contribution to the Mail Art Network. I cannot, uh, of course, I cannot remember all those names, you know, Latin American names, uh, but Clemente Padin is the, the most, most known name, of course, and uh, I keep much of his works in my archives. In that time, we were living relatively normally, and at that time, it was something very exciting for me to see how they live and uh, under which circumstances and uh, maybe they gave us example how to behave when we were in similar situations in 90s. In both South America and Central Eastern Europe, subjected as they were to oppressive regimes, artists used male art networks to bypass censorship, counter repression, and challenge the political control of social, cultural, and personal life. For many, male art became a sort of a survival strategy, one of the few ways to do art. And it connected artists with their counterparts in other countries as well as the broader revolutionary, counter hegemonic communities. Of course, that it was practiced by using the state run postal system made it all the more subversive. In the Eastern Bloc, officials would often confiscate male art and harass and even arrest artists engaged in the network. Many male artists were also doing conceptual and performance art. There are stories of Hungarian artists, for example, smuggling their works to Yugoslavia in order to use that country's looser controls over the post. 
It's important to add that even though Yugoslavia wasn't as restrictive, it was still a one-party regime that exercised control over the cultural sphere, using art as a soft power tool. There are instances of the most critical artists jailed for their troubles, for example. And the country's openness did not mean that experimental artists, including of the male kind, were able to represent Yugoslavia internationally. What's more, in both regions, male artists increasingly questioned artistic trends coming down from their respective reference points, be it New York, Paris, or Moscow, as well as their own marginal positions in the Cold War setup. Whether they supported decolonization or non-alignment, male art became a prominent decentralizing strategy. This is why male art and other artistic exchanges between Latin America and Eastern Europe, including Uruguay and Yugoslavia, flourished in the 1970s and 80s. These were peripheral areas, peripheral to the West and to the East, that is, without a history of mutual colonial domination, cultivating artistic connections outside the cultural centers and institutions, outside the market, outside the Cold War, outside the colonial systems. In male art, the money was not included in any way. So everything was free. The participation in uh, exhibitions was free. Uh, you get the catalog for free, but your work uh, stays where you send it. It was very, very open and democratic. Everybody could take part from whatever country, from whatever continent. Uh, there were no frontiers. In male art, no state frontiers, no political frontiers, no racial frontiers. Everything was open and we were all equal in this network. a visual artist, and I'm also a writer, a researcher. I work as a choreographer. I work as a... well, I do many things. Born in Uruguay in 1981, Francisco Tomsic has a familial connection to the region of former Yugoslavia. My grandparents uh, came from the Primorska region of Slovenia after the First World War. They traveled via Trieste with Italian passports to Uruguay in 2013, Francisco obtained the Slovenian citizenship and soon moved to Ljubljana. One February day in 2015, he went to see an exhibition of the late Croatian multimedia artist Josip Stosic. And I found uh, his works so close to the ones from some artists from the 70s and 80s in Uruguay that I wrote immediately to Clemente Padin. For me, and for many artists of my generation in, in the country, in Uruguay, Clemente Padin is a, is a reference. And I just thought, okay, uh, Clemente should know about some, some artists from the former Yugoslavia who are maybe not, not so, so much in the mainstream. 
Tomsic asked Padin for contacts of ex-Yugoslav artists he could meet in the region. It was the list Padin included in his reply that catapulted Francisco into the lost world of Yugoslav male art. When he told me about the project, I was directly thinking about filming the interviews. So I proposed to him that I can film and that I can also make a film out of it. Henrike von Davids is a German anthropologist, photographer and documentary filmmaker, as well as Tomsic's collaborator on the project. Filming the material we started in January uh, 2018, when we interviewed Clemente Padin for the first time. At the end of that year, Tomsic went to the Clemente Padin archive at the University of the Republic in Montevideo, then managed by Ricardo Bollone. Tomsic put on a pair of blue latex gloves and opened a black folder labeled Yugoslavia. Out of the folder spilled postcards, envelopes, drawings, photographs and catalogs Padin had received from fellow male artists practicing in Yugoslavia. Tomsic's list of addresses grew from 6 to 18, and La Carpeta Yugoslavia, the Yugoslavia folder project, was born. The emails included in that list were not useful anymore. The .yu country code top-level domain was discontinued in 2010. So Francisco asked himself, What happens if I use this list, the postal addresses from this list, and I go to these places and try to meet these people, not using any, any of the social networks we have now, any of the digital channels we have now, but trying to stick to these addresses, these physical addresses. The following summer, in June 2019, Tomsic traveled to Belgrade. I decided to start in Belgrade because most of artists represented were from Belgrade or from the northern part of uh, Yugoslavia. In the northern part of uh, Serbia, in Vojvodina, close to the Hungarian border. In Serbia's capital, he frequented the Center for Cultural Decontamination and attended events around Belgrade. Some of the people he met helped him expand his list yet again to 25 and track down the people on it. Plan A was to simply go to the addresses on the list and meet the artists there. <laughs> well, you know, when you go to Belgrade, every taxi driver will tell you, I mean, there is impossible to find anybody here because the streets change names so many times. There are even books written about it. But in fact, you know, uh, this, is, this is a very paradoxical thing, which I think applies to the whole former Yugoslavian sphere. Sometimes the discourse of the change is more important than, than the reality of the change itself. In fact, the, these artists were living, more or less, all of them, in the same places. But the plan backfired. He could not get anyone to talk to him. Yeah, but you know, I mean, if you do it in Uruguay, it could work. Initiate plan B. So I sent letters to all of them. But the main reason of this first was sending the regards of Clemente Padin, because, so to say, Clemente Padin was blessing the project. He asked me, okay, please send my regards to those people. People he never met, probably in life, but they were corresponding. They were sending letters to each other from, from the US. Then he explained what he was doing and asked to meet them. And I waited for their answers. Three weeks later, responses started arriving. The first to mail back was Andrei Tishma. I can just picture it. Here he is doing his thing in Novi Sad in the 66th summer of his life, and out of nowhere a letter from a stranger turns up in the mail like a blast from the past. How did you feel when you received Tomsic's letter? What went through your mind? Oh, well, 
first uh, some nice memories, you know, because for me, mail art is a memory, very pleasant time and my activities and interesting people. When I received this letter from uh, Francisco, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised that some some young person is interested in that history. And, uh, of course, he mentioned Clemente and that he's the source for his information. So, of course, I accepted to talk with him. Uh, it was not allowed to send letters to Yugoslavia from, from Croatia. It was very nice for me, like a memory, like someone from the past calls you and wants to talk about that period. And uh, although I forgot much from that time, the names and... Tom Sitch and von Davids visited and interviewed a number of artists on the list. They chatted about personal histories of the artist's engagement with male art, about their archives, about their linkages to South American artists in general and to Padin in particular. Dobrica Kamperelic gave them what may have been his final interview. And they also visited Nenad Bogdanovic, he of the two calls for entries Bolone located in Padin's magazines. Bogdanovic was active in the male art network in the 1980s and early 1990s and has since been a prominent performance artist. He's one of the artists working in Ojaci, that dense Vojvodinen hub of male art. We met him. He was waiting for us on the train station. We went to his house. He opened his archive to us. I know Clemente. We corresponded mm-hmm. many, many years ago. Maybe from 80s. Yeah. Yeah. By then, Tomsic was planning an exhibition of documents and artworks related to the project. Bogdanovic say, okay, this is a nice thing. And what if we, if I go to Montevideo? So I say, okay. Bogdanovic got some funding from Serbia's culture ministry to travel to the opening of Tomsic's exhibition. And he came. Um, he came to Montevideo for the first time in his life. He also met Clemente Padin at his house in Montevideo. Oh, hola. hola. I think what was the most incredible part was that, uh, and this is also in the movie, you know, that Clemente Padin and uh, Nina Bogdanovic uh, finally also because of the exhibition were able to meet each other. And uh, for me, this was very, very incredible because they wrote to each other many, many years ago and not some years, but yeah, decades. So maybe they don't even know each other so well, but Something they were very deep connected and they were very happy to eat, meet each other and think about the old times, how it was. When I saw that, I realized uh, something was going on with this research project. It's something which helps to keep building the network somehow. And this was also related to friendships. It was connected to affinities. These things are very, very hard to articulate and rationalize. But these things are the the most important aspects, the things which are related to the interpersonal, to create an interpersonal possibility. On December 13th, 2019, a Friday, the Yugoslavia Folder Exhibition opened at the Museum of Memory in Montevideo. Exhibits included photographs, objects, prints, texts and documents related to the project, including a contribution from Andrei Tishma's archive. Well, I am glad that this exhibition was realized Later, I've seen they, they showed my private life catalog there, some pages with uh, Uruguayan artists. This male art um, show, Private Life, was my biggest uh, success. 
It was shown in uh, 14 cities in Yugoslavia. So sheets of art from the exhibition that had solicited entries from Uruguayan male artists in Padin's magazine back in 1985 made their way to Uruguay more than 30 years later. The vernissage, attended by more than a thousand people, featured a performance by Nenad Bogdanovic, an experimental silent short Tomsic had made in Belgrade while awaiting the male artist's responses, and a draft of Von Davids's documentary. I have seen this video that they shown on the in, in Montevideo, and I see uh, Clemente f- first remember my name from Serbia. Francisco asked him, who do you remember from Yugoslavia, from those male artists? Oh, Andre Tishma. I was so glad. I was the first who he remembers. Because, you know, with the time, you lose memories of names in your head. The room where the exhibition took place is very special in the Museum of Memory because it's devoted to the memory of the dictatorship and how the people got to produce some kind of resistance to the dictatorship. In the middle of the room, pots and pans hang from the ceiling. Uruguayans banged on casseroles like these on balconies and streets in protest against the oppressive government. Tomsic first wanted to remove them for the duration of his exhibition. Then he learned that Serbs in the 1990s banged pots and pans from their windows and balconies to drown out the sound of the main evening newscast on a government-run TV channel. So the pots and pans stayed. Unlike Bogdanovic, Tishma doesn't like to travel, so he has only been following all this from his home in Novi Sad. He's in the documentary, his exhibition was part of Tomsic's, he was in a way reconnected with his male art days with fellow male artists with Padin. So I asked him for his take on Tomsic's project, how it feels to be a part of it. Oh, it's, it's so nice. I was really, really surprised how nice it was done and uh, <laughs> the, the audience it was... Uh, studying our works and reading and watching and this video and it's very interesting <laughs> this is a great uh, physical distance between serbia and uruguay but it seems that we are very close we from from yugoslavia were very active and protesting this war and everything uh, similar to latin american artists so Maybe we have something in common in our nature to resist, to fight. So it shows that the physical distance doesn't mean nothing. The project is not finished yet, actually. So we are thinking about going on. We don't know still uh, how long we will go on. For as long as it takes, I guess. Tomsic told me that some of the ideas for the next phase include publishing a book about the Yugoslavia folder, organizing exhibitions in Serbia to replicate the one in Montevideo, and expanding his scope to other former Yugoslav republics. Žene 
žene se slave Žene su lepe, žene su male Žene daju mleka, žene se slave When I first learned of this story on Tomsic's Instagram, I immediately knew I had to look into it. Padin's list launched Tomsic on a journey of discovery, and I found that fascinating. Little did I know that Tomsic's Insta post would do the same to me. Step by step, stop by stop, I ventured further and deeper into the narrative labyrinth than I first imagined. I haven't made it to the center yet. In elementary school in Czechoslovakia before 1989, everyone in my compulsory Russian language class had to correspond with a pen friend in the Soviet Union. After the Velvet Revolution, as a high schooler, at the time Tishma and other Serbian male artists fought against the war and the embargo with their art, I was exchanging light-hearted letters in English with a network of pen pals all over the world, from Canada to Argentina, from Iceland to Greece, from Japan to the Philippines. I remember, and I realized, kind of miss, the thrill of opening my mailbox and collecting a stack of letters from all corners of the world, even though most contained a written equivalent of small talk. To this day, to my wife's amusement, I open my mailbox with traces of excitement and anticipation even the daily disappointment can't quite quash. I can only imagine how male artists must have felt in those same moments, retrieving from their mailboxes all kinds of art from all over the world, responding to their own works. What's more, they were part of something bigger than themselves, something they helped build, something that was doing the political work they were not otherwise allowed to do in the authoritarian, dictatorial, or totalitarian regimes where they lived. I'm a big fan of uh, mail. <laughs> As an anthropologist, uh, this mail exchange is very interesting. And also this mail art exchange was very interesting because it was very political. Normally, post is used as a personal thing that, that somebody informs somebody about something, but it's not so much used about politics. And I think this was very different in the mail art project. It was stronger because it was very physical. No politics exchanged hands, so to speak, in my little pen pal exchanges, and the little stickers and doodles in the margins were as arty as it got. But I made a few what I thought of as somewhat close friends, and I even visited one in Hungary and one in Portugal. For Tomsic too, the friendship piece was central to the male art exchanges. The most important thing now is related to friendship, because the word friendship was very present from the beginning. So to say, the red thread going, going through the whole thing. Friendships cultivated over the years of exchanging artworks. Friendships fostered through the hardships of living and working under oppressive regimes. Friendships that endured even after the exchange stopped. Friendships that got revived through a stranger's intervention. If friendship is the thread, the path serpentines through many curves and corners. Reminiscing about the way things used to be in terms of male, and in this case male art, unseals the realm of memory. Rediscovering friendships in the archives of ages, reconnecting at life's sunset with old friends even though you've never met them through mail, through art. Recall the first thing Tishma said when he received Tomsic's letter. For me, male art is a memory. It's all about the things we used to do, the people we used to be. What is very interesting, but this is something which anthropologists always also like to investigate, and this is memory, no? Like, what do people remember? Maybe what is the most important things they remember from these times? Because of this mail art, they made newspapers and exhibitions. So when we interviewed them, everybody said, oh, this guy made this newspaper, and 
this one made this and there we had an exhibition there and yeah like the memory what they remember from these times and also uh things which uh yeah which are not so clear anymore for them because it's many years ago male art was always on the margins of the art world Aside from its political impact, it has been inconsequential, as Stuart Holm has put it, adding that it is precisely the democratic nature of male art, the sheer number of practitioners, that prevented it from becoming an established and valued art form. An additional reason, it was the act of exchange that was the goal, not the artwork itself. In the process of postal communication, the art retreated into the background. Sometimes works were exhibited or collected in magazines, but the principle of no jury, no return, no fee meant that anything went as long as it was mailed. Here's the art critic Ricardo Bollone's observation. Now it's more than, than, I guess, 25 years that, that I'm working on visual poetry and concrete poetry and experimental literature, etc., And I've seen that basically, for example, from the academia, almost all those fields uh, are studied. And even at, at a commercial level, all the magazines and, 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 and books of that era has um, rising in prices. But that doesn't apply with, with male art. There are no, uh, I'm sure there are papers about male art, but there are no books, for example, that, that really try to uh, reconstruct the history of male art. And there, there's not a market yet, I think which is something that that happened with all the other experimental fields of the time. Indeed, operating outside the market by default on purpose, too, contributed to male art remaining outside the realm of commercial exchanges. Clemente Padin has written that the capitalist system deepens the alienation of the artist by forcing them to express themselves in a way that fits the profit impulse rather than their essence as artist. In other words, the artist sees himself obliged to work for art rather than to live for his art. Not everything needs to be commodified, and this is perhaps one additional reason for my appreciation of male art. In male art's decentralized structure, I also see parallels with popular education, whereby everyone teaches and everyone learns, and with open space technology, whereby participants create the meeting agenda. If a conference, for example, is an event where the program is decided by the organizers, an open space version of a conference, also known as an unconference, is an event where sessions are decided by participants. Everyone's an expert in something, and so everyone can lead a session. Only topics important to the group at the time are raised, and whoever comes to the sessions is the right people. Male art follows similar principles of debate, decision-making, and deliberation. Anyone can participate. Whoever does participate is the right people. And participants decide the agenda, the topics of projects, of exhibitions, of publications. As the Hungarian male artist Győr Galantai put it, male art is a sort of brainstorming that makes it possible for us to find out what people are interested in and what the answers are. The self-managing, self-financing and self-promoting aspects of male art also find echoes in the practices of Yugoslav self-management. In fact, and this is perhaps the biggest picture piece of the story, Tomsic's work to reconnect Uruguayan and Yugoslav male artists speaks to the persistence of Yugoslavia as a cultural project. If we say there are still many important issues to be told about Yugoslavia as a cultural project, then it becomes very interesting because, in fact, the culture project was the one less developed. But for some reason, and maybe because of that, is the one which persists most. What I mean by that? As a political project, Yugoslavia it disappeared. A cultural project takes more time. 
for me, the Yugoslav culture project is persisting in many more levels than the political one. It's very persistent. Even if you want to hide it, if you want to destroy it, it's very hard to destroy this. These people who were born in Yugoslavia and who start their career in Yugoslavia, they are alive and they are not so old. And they are still working, many of them. And this is a persistence of the project, which goes much, much, much behind political narratology of Yugoslavia. To quote Vesna Goldsworthy, just because Yugoslavia is no longer there, it doesn't mean that it has gone away. Indeed, Ranko Bugarski doubles down when he says, a closer look at the larger scene may even leave the observer with the impression that in purely cultural terms, Yugoslavia never really disintegrated. This, after all, is what this podcast is all about. Next time on Remembering Yugoslavia. And I said, okay, enough, I'm taking control of this. And I looked at it as sort of a gesture of resistance. I think that it was quite a healthy way to take this agency yeah, and uh, use it into something that would make you feel happier. <laughs> On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, a story of a monument bringing people together again thanks to one exile who had decided she had enough. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information, photos, samples of male art, and the transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com podcast. If you like this podcast, become a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia or make a one-time contribution at rememberingyugoslavia.com donate. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petric, additional music by No Sense, Sea Dragon, El Remolon, and Petar Alargij, and sound effects by Agax Lee, Carl Eward, and Seth Lind, licensed under Creative Commons. I am Petar Korchniak. Adios. Adios.